How did we get to become the dominant species of ape on the planet? To find out and to become an instant expert in human evolution, join New Scientist and six experts at the British Library in London on Saturday, February the 29th. Find full details at newscientist.com slash events and get 10% off with the code NSPODCAST. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly. We're here to bring you the most mind-bending, important, or let's face it, just memorably weird things that have happened in science this week. I'm Penny Sarchet, news editor at New Scientist. And I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. Joining us on the panel today are New Scientist journalists Donna Liu and Jacob Aaron. Donna is one of our news reporters and Jacob is deputy news editor. Hi there. Hello. This week we'll be hearing about how the coronavirus is affecting everyday life in Wuhan City and Hubei province in China and we'll be discussing how archaeologists are uncovering the origins of the alphabet. But first, we're going full quantum weirdness with Jacob. This is the news that one of the most startling facts about physics, which is the understanding that particles can be in two places at once, may soon be demonstrated on a solid object. So we would be able to put a physical solid object in two places at once. Jacob, help, what does that mean? Roughly, quantum physics says that objects can be in multiple quantum states at once, as described by something called the wave function. And the classic example of this is the double slit experiment, where you fire an electron beam at two vertical slits and uh, have a particle detector on the other side. And even when your beam is shooting just one electron at a time, the particle's wave function appears to travel through both slits at the same time, interfering with itself. OK, I'm not going to get into whether the electron itself goes through both slits mm-hmm. or whether it's the wave function, because I don't let... That's too too much detail. But um, what is the news? What's been done here to get us towards this unholy state of being in two places at once. So the new thing here is that physicists in Austria have used a laser to chill a nanoparticle as a glass bead of about 100 million atoms down to almost absolute zero. As it sounds, absolute zero is the coldest possible temperature, slightly below minus 273 Celsius, and the particle is almost as cold as this. But just incidentally, there's nowhere in the universe that's absolutely at absolute zero. Is that right? No, weirdly, the, the universe on, on average is actually slightly warmer than, than absolute zero, about three degrees warmer. So th- this experiment was much colder than most of the universe. Colder than anywhere in the universe. OK, <laughs> g- carry on. I distracted you. <laughs> uh, so what, what they've done is they've, they've chilled this glass bead down to its coldest possible quantum state. And that's because at the level we're talking about, motion and heat are are basically the same thing. As you heat a particle up, it will uh, move more. So if you remove a particle's motion, which is what they did with this laser, you're also removing heat. And they tried to get it as cold as they possibly could. So um, what has that actually got to do with being in two places at once? So that would be the, the next step of being able to use this laser uh, to, to chill things down. The, the, the cold state that they put it in is called the, the quantum ground state, and it's basically the simplest possible state that the nanoparticle can be in. And with some clever tweaking, which would actually be quite difficult and technical, you could use this uh, laser cooling technique to put the particle into a spatial superposition. In other words, being in two places at once. So what would that actually like look like? What would we like see or detect? I, it's hard to actually say because no one's ever done it. That That's kind of what makes these experiments so so exciting. And seeing a solid object put into a superposition is definitely on my science bucket list. And and this whole area is, is really cool. The, the main reason they want to do this, besides just being something that's never done before, is to investigate theories of quantum gravity. So at, at the moment, our understanding of physics is split broadly into two areas. You've got quantum physics, the very small gravity, uh, general relativity, the very big, but 
for a true understanding of the universe, we need to be able to put these together into quantum gravity. So if you put an object in two places at once, its uh, gravitational experience will be slightly different and you can compare what happens on a quantum level. Cool. Uh, we'll tweet a picture of that tiny bead from our Twitter account, although it's currently only in one place. That's our sci-fi alert, meaning that we've reported something this week that's already occurred or been predicted in science fiction. Rowan, what is it? Uh, this is the story that yarn grown from human skin cells could be used to make human textiles. So Ugh. clothes out of yeah, I know it's, it's pretty grim. Uh, the researcher who's done this says that with the yarn, any textile approach is feasible. Knitting, braiding, weaving, even crocheting <laughs> out of human. To make the yarn, the scientists grew sheets of human cells, then twisted them into threads, then intertwined the threads to make a nice strong yarn. And um, this can be dried and spooled, just like cotton. Oh, it's so gross, but, but cool as well. Um, what's the link to sci-fi here? Oh, this comes from one of my heroes, Alan Moore, uh, who wrote Watchmen, of course. Um, and in his groundbreaking ecological epic, Swamp Thing, which I'm sure you've all read, <laughs> uh, influenced me a lot. Um, in Swamp Thing, he once described a group of people who make clothes out of humans. Um, but the yarn in our story will be used to make tubes and joints without triggering an immune response. Uh, so far, that's been done in rats, but not yet in people. Useful, but so disgusting. <laughs> the, the response to this story has been brilliant. I've, I've seen lots of uh, knitting groups online have been picking it up and saying, you know, how about this? Have a go with this. Um, it's amazing. And the picture's really worth seeing. Um, we'll tweet that from our Twitter feed, which is New Scientist Pod. Next is a really intriguing story describing the origin of the alphabet. Rowan, what's it about? Yeah, so we're used to thinking about the origin of species by building family trees and seeing how species are related to each other. And Darwin was the first to do this, of course, with his tree of life. Um, and using genetics, we can trace everything back to a common ancestor. And we can do a similar thing with language by reconstructing a family tree of languages and also with our writing systems and seeing what they share and seeing what features they have in common. But it's hard because we rely on little bits of clay and, you know, bits of pottery with marks on them. Um, and inscriptions in rock. Um, but people have meticulously pieced together all the evidence of this uh, to find out who created the first alphabet. And we're talking about the first alphabet, which isn't exactly the same thing as the first writing? That's right. So the first writing that we know of was, was cuneiform and hieroglyphics, uh, which came about a thousand years before the alphabet came along. And there's been a huge arguments, or more like a big bun fight in academia, <laughs> about where the alphabet came from. Uh, and who invented it. Uh, it's been this big mystery and we want to know the answer because we take it for granted completely and it's one of the most revolutionary and long-lasting inventions in human history. We know that the alphabet derives from the hieroglyphics of ancient Egypt. That This was a writing system that originated about 5,200 years ago and as we all know, it's basically a pictogram form of writing and there are about 1,000 or so symbols or images that correspond to words. So how do we know that that transition from basically using pictures to using symbols, um, how do we know that came from hieroglyphics? Well, because we've done a kind of linguistic archaeology, um, so you can see the remnants of hieroglyphs in our alphabet, in the one we use now. So if you look at the letter M, hmm. um, it looks like a bit like a water trough, right? Now you, now you think about it, and that's the actual hieroglyphic symbol it came from all thousands of years ago. So most of our letters can be traced back to their original hieroglyphs. Um, there's a great image showing this. 
um, showing the original hieroglyphs and the corresponding letters of our alphabet um, in the magazine this week. Uh, we'll tweet a picture of that. Now, alphabets are much more flexible and simple to use um, because symbols of an alphabet represent the sounds that make up a word. So each letter of an alphabet represents a phoneme, which is a sound in spoken language. The phonemes are the elementary particles of language. You can't break them up and get something smaller. And now what's been done, what's been pieced together, is that they found that, that there was a really multicultural group of people who put together the first alphabet about 3,800 years ago um, in an area of Egypt where you had uh, this melting pot speaking different languages. There were Nubians, Egyptians, North Africans, Southwest Asians, all together. So you can imagine the need for a system that could write um, so that it could communicate between these different peoples. And so once they'd done that, did it sort of take off immediately and spread everywhere or did it take a while to sort of be adopted more widely? Yeah, it took a while. So that's the weird, one of the weird things about it. It took about 600 years yeah. after before people took up. Uh, took it up and and, we, and it's that's been the question and people have thought well is it because writing was something that elite people did and they just didn't want it spreading to the masses you know it was the one percent dunking on the poor people as usual uh, another idea is that um, the earliest forms of the alphabet didn't have all the vowels which made them you know quite difficult to write and so it might have been t- difficult to catch on it and that's one of the mysteries that we uh, explore in the mag this week but what's really cool, just to reiterate, is that the alphabet, this is one of the greatest inventions of all time. It was created by this ragtag cosmopolitan fleet band of people um, from different cultures. Um, it was a cross-cultural invention. Um, and people think it was the, they were part of an army. Like all, They're all conscripted into an army. And um, that was part of the reason that you had to get messages, a good message, a way of communicating between these groups. Wow, I'll never look at M the same way again. No, not just M. All the other letters. (laughs) All of them. Does that mean that essentially, you know, the the alphabet is an an ancient military technology in the same way that, you know, something like GPS we we use today derived from the military? Yes, weaponized. It's a weaponized (laughs) technology used to to conscript us all. Okay, time out. Let's take some time now just to quickly tell you about some awesome extra ways you can join the New Scientist family. New Scientist has launched a fascinating array of one-day and evening science events around London. Yes, as well as our flagship four-day event, New Scientist Live, there are lots of smaller, bite-sized, delicious events. Yummy. From exploring quantum physics and cosmology, the brain and consciousness, health and well-being, human evolution, the science of sleep and so much more. With expert, internationally renowned scientists, you don't want to miss out on these inspiring events. You certainly do not. You can find out all our events at newscientist.com slash events. And podcast listeners get 10% off any of these events. Just quote NS Podcast when you get to the checkout. Okay, let's dive back in. It's time now for Lifeform of the Week, where we big up an organism that we particularly like. Uh, this time, I actually wanted to introduce you to two life forms, not one. So the best thing that I've seen all week is this video um, that's been put out by a charity based in Southern California. Um, the clip was captured at night, and it shows a coyote and a badger travelling together down a culvert, which is a kind of tunnel that lets uh, like water and, and other things run under a highway. So the video was posted by uh, Peninsula Open Space Trust, and, and what they've been doing is using cameras to try to understand how wildlife in 
in um, an area of the Santa Cruz Mountains um, interacts with highways because highways are obviously quite a big problem for animals when we cut up their habitat. Um, but what's so amazing and also just really cute about this video is that it doesn't look like a coincidence. They're not just happening to go through this tunnel at the same time. They really seem to be travelling together like a pair. So the coyote, which is much bigger and much faster than the badger, sort of hangs back eagerly waiting for the badger to join it uh, before they head into the tunnel together. And, and that's really got a big response on the internet. So it's been a huge hit on the internet and we'll retweet the video from our Twitter account. Uh, but it turns out there may be a good reason for this pairing, which is really cool. So according to the US Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, coyotes and badgers are actually quite well known to hunt together. And um, what's fun is that each animal brings like special skills to the party. So the, like I said, the coyotes are much uh, faster. So if a ground squirrel runs away, the coyote is the one that can catch it. But if a small prey animal instead decides to sort of dig down into a burrow, that's where the badger comes in and the badger can dig it up. And I came across a study all the way back in 1992 that studied this interaction um, and they found that coyotes definitely eat way more prey when they work with the badgers. Badgers seem to benefit too and ground squirrels themselves, the prey animals, are just way more vulnerable when the two team up. So that's something new that I learned this week. Have they captured this on camera before? I, they think it's the first time they've captured like them travelling together. That There are definitely photos um, going back quite a way of them hunting together. But this kind of little cute partnership moving together, that, that seems they entirely new. They have captured new. it in uh, Disney movies, right? Yeah. <laughs> and we'll do together. again, I'm sure, following yeah. this. This week in New Scientist magazine, we've got a special report on the coronavirus, which has now had over 20,000 confirmed cases and has been detected in at least 23 countries? Yeah, actually, as of the figures of uh, this morning, uh, 6th of February, that's now uh, 28,000 confirmed cases with more than 500 deaths as well. And just a quick update on that. Um, one of the key things is that we still don't actually know the death rate. Um, so uh, you can't just divide the number of deaths by the number of cases, which is what a lot of people have been doing. And, and that's why you might have heard this 2% figure. But really about 95% of the people who've got the virus they haven't uh, sort of got to the end of it yet so they haven't recovered or died so really we have no idea yet just how deadly or, or not uh, the infection is what everyone's sort of waiting for is to see whether this really does go pandemic um, so that would be if there's epidemics in countries outside of China so more than one country um, it looks like it's now been detected in 24 countries but isn't really uh, forming outbreaks yet but the one to watch really now I would say is Africa so that's one of the few regions in the world it's a whole continent where there's been no reported cases as of today and there's a huge amount of traffic between China and Africa there's really strong trade relationships there so in all likelihood, there are cases already circulating in Africa. We just haven't been able to detect them. There's been a big meeting this week in Senegal uh, for health agencies to discuss their response. The Gates Foundation is um, donating tons of money to Africa preparedness. Um, but that's really one to keep an eye on. But meanwhile, uh, the vast majority of cases and deaths have so far been in and around the city of Wuhan, um, which has been under lockdown for weeks now. And uh, Donna, you're one of our news reporters. You've been speaking to people out in Wuhan this week. What is it like there right now? It's um, it's extremely quiet, actually. The streets are largely deserted because people are staying at home. Uh, so, as you mentioned, Wuhan and 15 other cities in Hubei province are under lockdown. They have been since January 23. Uh, essentially, the government shut down public transportation systems and residents aren't able to enter or leave these cities, uh, with some exceptions. 
across Wuhan city itself, most businesses are shut, uh, including things like chain restaurants. But uh, some of those that are open are using heat sensors to check that uh, people don't have any fevers before they're allowed to enter. Supermarkets so far seem to have decent supplies of fresh fruit and vegetables, although just yesterday I spoke to a British guy who's choosing to stay in Wuhan and he told me that there's been some price hikes for certain produce and he's now noticing a lack of fresh meat as well. The only busy places seem to be pharmacies where there are quite long lines. There's a worrying shortage of protective medical supplies, things like face masks, hand sanitizer, gloves. A lot of people in China actually buy these products online, uh, and I've been told that most retailers are sold out and won't be able to fulfill these orders for at least a fortnight. Mm. So it's still sort of really going strong in, in the Hubei province. What, what's it like around the rest of China? There are now cases in every Chinese province and across the country people are staying indoors, even in cities where there are no government-mandated lockdowns. People are worried, they're very suspicious, and it sounds like Hubei locals are actually becoming pariahs in China. There's been multiple reports of businesses in other parts of the country that are turning people away because they have Hubei ID cards. Uh, There was a case in a county in Hebei province, which is in the north, where authorities were offering bounties to people for each Wuhan person they reported. And incredibly, there's also been reports and, and pictures of villages where they've dug up streets or built brick walls, essentially to keep out outsiders. People don't want to catch this virus, and understandably so. Mm, it's really shocking. Um, how is China managing the demand for medical services? Um, as best they can, fairly efficiently, I would say. Uh, the Chinese government has built two new hospitals from scratch in an incredibly short period of time, one which has a 1,000 beds and the other which has 1,600. Uh, they've also turned stadiums and convention centres into makeshift hospitals to house people with mild symptoms. Even so, the demand for testing and treatment is enormous, particularly given those stats that you mentioned earlier. There's just too many sick people and not enough staff and not enough testing kits. Some hospitals are so overwhelmed, they're sending people home to self-quarantine, particularly if they don't have severe symptoms. Thousands of medical staff from around China have also been sent to Hubei province to alleviate some of the burden. I spoke to a doctor in Shanghai who says colleagues have been sent to Hubei and he's actually on the next team of staff to be deployed. And at his hospital, they've donated almost all of their relevant medical supplies to Wuhan and Hubei province. And he says that at the hospital now, the remaining staff don't even have enough face masks, so they've resorted to reusing them. One thing um, I've I've noticed a lot in the Western media is um, we do know that there's probably very many more cases than those that have been detected. Um, And quite often that's reported as, are the Chinese government really telling the truth, which doesn't seem very fair. It's very difficult to test everyone with flu-like symptoms. Um, So, yes, there probably are at at least maybe uh, 10 times as many people with um, the virus at the moment. Um, I wondered what that, how that's playing out in China, where the media is quite different and controlled. Like, is there a real suspicion about honesty from the government there? A man I spoke to actually said that a lot of people are quite wary about the figures that are being released officially, um, particularly because there are so many people who are showing flu-like symptoms but who haven't been able to be um, tested and gotten an official diagnosis. So there's a bit of wariness about whether those figures are accurate, particularly given the fact that some people have actually unfortunately died before they've been diagnosed, so they won't count towards those official stats. How are the people in the lockdown cities coping? 
it's a strange time, actually. The, the Chinese New Year holiday was extended as a result of this outbreak. It was supposed to have finished on January 13. So across the country, many schools and businesses are still shut. And in Wuhan City, they won't open until February 13 at the earliest. Among residents in these cities where there are lockdowns, it's, it's a strange mix of uh, boredom, frustration or anxiety, depending on how directly people have been affected. Uh, but generally speaking, people are trying to keep their spirits up. Uh, videos have done the rounds on social media of people chanting in unison from apartment buildings, um, this kind of encouraging chant, Wuhan Jiao. Jiao, the term literally translates to add oil. It's it's a term that you often hear at sporting matches and things like that. It, it roughly translates to come on or stay strong. So it's a term of um, motivation. And the lockdown's also given rise to a term, yun shi fan, which means something along the lines of meal by cloud. Uh, People are getting together virtually with their friends or family via video calls, sitting down um, with their phones propped up and having a meal together. Wow, that's that's incredible. Is there much of a sort of local charitable effort going on in the country? Yeah, yeah. Ordinary people from around China have really um, donated a lot in terms of money and supplies. So literally millions of face masks have been donated primarily to Hubei province. The billionaire co-founder of Alibaba, Jack Ma, has also pledged 100 million yuan, which is about, I think, 11 million uh, pounds uh, towards efforts to develop a vaccine. Yeah, fortunately, um, uh, reports have come out this week that there are several trials going on in Wuhan at the moment of drugs that potentially might block the coronavirus. Um, So really now we just have to hope that some of these might work. Yeah, time will tell. Thanks, Donna. We'll be, of course, keeping an eye on this and reporting it um, as it carries on uh, in the magazine and online. Um, That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can read about all these stories and much more at newscientist.com. If you'd like to subscribe, and we would love you to subscribe, uh, there's a special offer for podcast listeners only. Uh, Get 10% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD10. Yep, just enter POD10 at the checkout on our website to get your subscription discount. Do get in touch with us on Twitter, New Scientist Pod, or email us at podcast at newscientist.com to let us know your thoughts on the show and tell us what you think the most interesting or exciting science news was this week. New episodes go live each Friday, so do subscribe to the show at the usual place you get your podcasts. Uh, Until next time, goodbye. 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 This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global.